Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, please? Uh, As Duran said, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at Hillside. Um, And exactly one year ago this weekend, uh, I preached from this pulpit, and we were at the very beginning of 2020, one week in. Uh, And I spoke uh, that Sunday about the importance of viewing Jesus as our King, as we prepared to begin our unhurried, our unhurried series. And I actually wanted to read you what I said at the beginning of that message, not because it's anything profound, but because it's interesting. So this is what I said on January 12, 2020. How are you this morning? Have you survived this week? And I actually don't mean that as a joke. This is classically a tough week. For many of you, this was the first week back into regular routine. For most of our students, you started school again this week. And now I know getting into routine is actually really nice, but we also get hit in the face with our MasterCard bill for Christmas. And the cold and the wet seems less magical without the lights and the Christmas music. Many of us have broken our New Year's resolutions this week. And already this year, this 2020, we've seen military tensions escalate. We've seen Australia struggle to deal with devastating fires. And we may be struggling to process the tragic loss of life as a result of a plane crash on the other side of the world, a plane crash that claimed the life of some of your friends. I bring up these things not to discourage you, not to bring down your mood, but because it would be silly of us not to be aware of the reality that we live in. And I want you to know that you're not alone. While every message around is pumping out ads about the good life, As you see your friends prepping for half marathons, eating well, cleaning the house, I want you to know that it's normal to feel like everything you planned earnestly for is slipping out of your fingers. And it's normal that even when we get that promotion, when we get the thing we've always been planning for, it doesn't deliver quite the way we'd have liked it to. Doesn't that sound relevant to this week? (laughs) A little bit? If we updated a couple of the headlines. Um, I could have just reused the introduction. As I say that, I kind of wonder why I didn't just reuse the sermon. But anyways, (laughs) why is this so pertinent? Is it just a coincidence that like the beginning of the year just always feels like a rough week and we had no idea what the rest of the year was going to hold? Or might it be that tragedy is a little bit more commonplace than we would like to admit? I think one temptation is just to say that 2020, just, I don't know, with the numbers or the calendar year or something, but it was in and of itself inherently bad. And it was bad. It, it was a terrible year for many, if not most people. But I think what it highlights more poignantly uh, is that all of our history proves to be unreliable. All of history proves to be unreliable. There's never been a purely excellent year. And while some years are absolutely worse than others, there is always tragedy, there's always challenge, and there's suffering somewhere. And I could probably read that introduction again next year, and probably it will be pertinent again. As followers of Jesus, we know why this is. Uh, We know why the world feels out of sorts, because it is out of sorts. As Christians, we know that there is a real spiritual reality that is out of sync. Humans sin. 
Adam and Eve in the garden are symbolic of the classic human. We all look at that tree in the garden, and when God asks us to trust him that he knows best, we decide not to trust him. What were the consequences of this choice? All of creation groans. There is suffering, pain, and death. Not only do we experience pain because evil people do evil things, but sin, human spiritual rebellion, our lack of trust in God is actually an underlying component of the fabric of our world. This is the consequence of living contrary to God's design. Not because God is petty. He's not like that selfish person who makes everyone else's life miserable because he doesn't get his way. That's not our God. He is the creator, and he's designed us to be like him. He's designed us for a purpose, to be like him and to be with him. Um, So just what has helped me kind of think through this, and maybe some of you in youth have heard this story before, but uh, several years ago now, um, I was going on a hike up uh, Mount Shiam in Chilliwack. Uh, I was actually on a date, so that just makes the story even worse. But we decided we are going to go on this hike. We were going through a little map book of all the hikes and trails in the area. And uh, in this book, it kind of told you the extremity of the hike. And there were some trails in this book that said 4x4 four four required. And there were some others that said 4x4 four four recommended. And I'm like, oh, so it's not required then. So I took my little uh, two-wheel drive Hyundai Sport Accent from 1996 with probably like two inches of clearance. Like, oh, we can do this. So I drove, it would be more accurate to say I drove into the mountain. Uh, It's surprising actually how far up the hill we made it through these cross ditches and like driving through and I mean, it felt pretty good until, you know, 45 minutes out of cell reception, hit a cross ditch, the whole uh, radiator shoved into the engine block, and all the coolants were everywhere on the mountain, out of cell reception, steam everywhere, thinking, wow, this was an irresponsible date decision. (laughs) And when we look at that story, when I look back at that, um, it's taught me many helpful lessons. (laughs) But one of them was uh, how dangerous it is to actually live out of sync with what we were created to do. When I look at that, I cannot look at that situation and say, this was clearly Hyundai's fault, because they did not create this vehicle to take me up this mountain. It's clearly my fault. That car was designed to drive really well, and it did for like as long as it lasted down the road. Uh, but going up a mountain, out of sync. It's a disaster. And I think this is a lot like what our human lives are like. It's not that God is necessary. God is not looking at us petty and going, wow, I can't believe you didn't listen to me. Now I'm going to get mad at you for that. He's like, no, I created you to be like me and to be with me and to trust me. And now you're not doing any of those things. So no wonder it's a disaster. You were created to to drive on the road, not to go off-road. So this is, this is the picture, this is the underlying fabric of why as Christians, when we look at the world around us, it, it makes sense that our radiator is shoved into the engine block that there are coolants all over the mountain because we're out of sync. This is, this might be new to you, this might not be new to you, but this is what we believe as Christians. So if we don't act like him, when we live out of sync with what we're created for, we can't be shocked when we see tragedy year after year after year. Like, this is the world that we live in, the broken world. Well, that's great. And you're like, Kevin, what's the deal, man? This is week 
week two of 2021. <laughs> Why are you already bringing us down? Um, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Uh, I am bringing this up because we are, as a church, uh, walking through what it looks like to be with God, uh, to abide in him, as Derwin spoke to us about last week. And for many of us, one of the huge challenges of life is learning to follow Jesus in the midst of really horrible circumstances, difficult years, sicknesses and disease and cruel people. And as a Christian, it can be frustrating because we believe in an all-powerful and all-good God who presumably could just step in and stop us from experiencing this. And friends, there are many questions and stacks of books written on the general idea of evil. Um, there are many questions that you might have, and we will not cover all of them, or even most of them. In fact, we just want to address one question this morning, and even then we'll see if we get to an answer. But I want us to take the next few minutes and talk about how a Christian continues to walk with, to be with God in the midst of really horrible circumstances. So let's read together from Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. I'm reading from the New International Version. Uh, I'd invite you uh, to stand as we read God's word. Uh, It's just a way of reminding ourselves of who is actually in charge. Matthew 6, starting at 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Father, uh, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you uh, that you inspired its writing, or that you have allowed us to have it uh, in a way that's understandable, and we pray that we would hear what you are saying through this passage and through all the other places in scripture that we read from. Um, and that we would notice what you're saying to us. Make us attentive to your Holy Spirit. Um, and whatever it is that I say, uh, Lord, may your Holy Spirit prompt the things that uh, everyone of us needs to hear. Let's pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take your seat. Now, I asked us to read this passage because this is not actually where we're going to start, but where we want to end up. So take this and pin it in your mental bulletin board. Uh, and pay attention to what God might say to you as we get closer and closer to where we end up. And we'll mention pieces as we go. Can you do that? I promise you, I think that, uh, I think what we just read is the answer to our question, Um, but in my journey at least, I needed to deal with a couple of other questions first. The first is this. If Jesus, the living and eternal God, came to live, die, be buried, and resurrected, and if he did all of this for the sake of making all things new, to destroy Satan, sin, and death, 
And if he did conquer them all at his resurrection, and we believe he did, and if he is indeed on his throne, and we believe he is, why do I still have to deal with coronavirus? Why does my granddad struggle to breathe? Why don't my headaches go away? Why do some of you have cancer? If God is in charge and he plans to get rid of all this pain, why hasn't it happened yet? Well, 2 Peter 3 uh, gives us a difficult answer. It says it's because God is patient. What? It's because he's patient. Now, some of you hear that, and though you heard the word patient, your heart heard apathetic, unbothered, perhaps even lazy. How could God be patient about fixing a broken world? 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you remember how we talked about God being slow to anger? That's not a separate part of God. God isn't an assembly of different characteristics. He's God, and he plays the long game. God is patient because as a people, we are fewer in number and lower in quality than would be best for us to be. We're fewer in number and lower in quality than would be best for us. God waits to be out with the old and in with the new because most of us are still the old. And he's committed to us becoming new. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's his goal for us. So he's patient. In fall 2019, uh, we studied the book of James. Depending on where you're at, this study feels like it was a month ago or like 10 years ago. But you might remember those infamous lines in chapter 1. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that you might be complete. Paul picks this up later in his uh, letter to Rome. We also glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Why does James rejoice when he faces trials and tests? Why does Paul glory in his suffering? Are they masochists? Are they just always finding the silver lining somewhere? Do they just slap a smile on while the world burns? It's fine. Or, or do they recognize God's patience in bringing about an even greater thing? Do they realize that just like lifting weights, the pain that comes with exercising these spiritual muscles of following Jesus even when it's not easy, this pain has the potential to grow us into precisely who we need to be, precisely into who God has made us to be. Consider it pure joy, James says, when God loves you enough to give you the opportunity to develop perseverance and character, which is a heavenly treasure that is valuable beyond gold. These are treasures in heaven, this character that we build. And isn't this the whole story of scripture? In Genesis 12, God begins with Abraham and tells him that through his family, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. 
God is restoring and making all things new, and he's using people to do it. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, it is essentially a story of this people, this family of Abraham, who just does not do a good job of blessing the world. They keep going out of sync with God's plan. They keep going off-road. They keep failing to trust him. And so things keep going wrong. And sometimes God allows those things to go really wrong. He lets them be destroyed by evil armies. He lets them wander in the wilderness while they fail to trust him. He lets them go into captivity again and again. He lets their dream of political success crumble to pieces. And it's not because he's fed up with them. If he was fed up with them, he would have just let them be. He would have chosen someone else who might do a better job. He's not fed up with them. He is full and overflowing with a rich and faithful, steadfast, unfailing, love and goodness kind of faithfulness for them. And he's committed to their well-being and the well-being of the world that he wants to bless through them. Maybe you've heard the blessing of Aaron over Israel. Actually, you did hear it because Laura just quoted in her prayer where he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace, which is wholeness and completeness. When Israel ends up in captivity, when Paul ends up in prison, when the church gets oppressed by the government, friends, this is not God being apathetic. This is God not giving up. This is God keeping his people. This is God bringing about whole restoration to a broken world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven which is, by the way, the prayer just before the passage that we read. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I know that you are praying for me because you tell me you're praying for me. Thank you. Sometimes I know you are praying for me because my life gets more difficult. Not because God is sadistic but because he'd actually rather me become who I am supposed to be, like him, than to let me stay content in sin. So when you pray for me, when you pray for others, God listens. And if you're praying that I become more like Jesus, when you pray for a revolution in the human heart, he acts. And he'll wrestle us away from our own self-obsessions at all costs. This is God's goodness. Parents, I think you know what this is like. You sit in the constant and persistent battle of making your child's life enjoyable while making their future beautiful. You know that if you only pay attention to the now, what their life is like now, their now will be the only thing that is going to be good. Great, they, they got all the candy they wanted but none of the teeth that they will. The long game focus is the difficult yet super important perspective if you're going to raise a healthy and well-adjusted child. Athletes, bear with me as I imagine what it's like to be an athlete. I assume that you know that if you want to be happiest right now, you do whatever you want in the right now. If you want to win the race, the game, the tournament, you need a long game focus. 
You work out early in the morning when you'd be happier sleeping. You take one portion of dinner and skip dessert when that raspberry cheesecake looks so good. God plays the ultimate long game. The one who was and who is and who is to come looks at the entire span of history and views you not just as a blip on the radar, but as a God-imaging, sacred human who's created to reign with him for all of eternity. This is what we are created for. Paul gives Timothy this trustworthy saying in chapter 2 of his second letter, where he says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he can't disown himself. God is the most faithful and patient of all fathers. Parents who have sleep-trained their children know how painful it is to hear your child cry in the middle of the night, and everything in you wants to just immediately make it better. But because you care about them, uh, it's your profound love for them that stops you from rushing in there. Uh, this is not a comment on sleep training or whatever. You, you do you. <laughs> but you understand the metaphor. Imagine God, our Father, and imagine the sacrifice he makes every time he allows us to suffer. Imagine the perfect father heart of God being torn to see us deal with 2020. While his patience, his knowledge of the end, his profound love for us, that all stays his hand. We actually read in chapter 12 of Hebrews that we should endure hardships as if they were disciplined from a father who loves us. God is treating you as his children. The Lord disciplines the one he loves, so do not lose heart when he rebukes you, for later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, because that is the best thing for us. Before we just continue, I want to clarify a couple of things. There are certainly more complexities to how all this plays out. And a danger is to take this to an extreme, to believe that every hardship or difficulty is directly linked to a sin that probably I or someone else close to me committed. Jesus was asked this very question. Why is this person blind? Is it their sin or their parents? Well, all that we can ever say about hardship is that it is directly linked to sin in general. Because humanity is broken, and because a lack of trust in God permeates everything, things will be difficult. But the opposite danger is also tempting, to be like Job. He did nothing to warrant suffering, but he experienced a lot of it. But his response was, I'm so perfect, there's no way God could have done anything to teach me or refine in me. Sometimes God will give us a particular hurdle to wake us up from personal sin. If you have a persistent, ongoing sin behavior in your life, you might be going through suffering because God is desperate for you to stop. Because he loves you. And he doesn't want you driving your car into the mountain. And sometimes, sometimes suffering is just a general reality of our world that reminds us just how bad sin is. And it's an opportunity for us to use it to become more like Jesus. The reality is God allows us to go through tests so that we might grow through tests. 
whether a test or circumstance is directly tied to a sin in our life or not, we still have not arrived at the end goal. We are not where we should be. So there's always an opportunity for growth. Is evil good? No. No, just because there's good out of evil doesn't mean it's good. No, do not hear me wrong in that. Is God so good that his goodness is greater than evil's badness? Yeah. Check out the cross. How do we, how were we brought into a revolution of life? Through death, through hijacking death itself. And we're even told that we can be like Jesus in our suffering, to be like the crucified king. God will not let evil win. He cannot. And so he actually takes the tools of evil, death, pain, suffering, and cruelty, and he says, even those will be used to bring about more goodness. This is great. But you kind of go, that's neat. In this room, that might seem like it makes sense. It might make sense. It makes sense to my brain. It might be compelling. I believe it's truth. But we collectively went through a horrible year last year, and our response is just that God's patient. To me, that makes sense, but I'm not sure that I can do it. I'm not sure that I can remember this. How, how do I handle this? Is it just my brain? How do I handle this if this is the new normal? How does the persecuted church wake up every day ready to die? How do the poorest of the poor not die of despair? How do our brothers and sisters in Hook worship when they are just trying to survive in a refugee camp? How did Paul sing and rejoice when in prison as the imperial powers of Rome crushed down on them? This last year has been horrible, but it's actually not unique. It's actually not unprecedented. For most of history, and for many in our world, death, poverty, evil, and hatred are the norm. And God has been faithfully patient, because what he is up to is worth him waiting for. So, what do we do about it? Should we pray for better circumstances? Well, can we hope for the end of COVID? Yeah, absolutely. Scripture is full of people praying with hope for the removal of suffering and the removal of horrible circumstances. God is doing that all the time. Remember, he is making all things new. That's where we end up. We absolutely can hope for better circumstances, but we cannot put our hope in them, in things that are on earth. Because 2020 has taught us anything. The things of earth are so unreliable. So what is our reliable hope? It's in heavenly things. And how do we do this? Because it can't just be something we know is truth. We need to learn how to live it. Well, this brings us back to Matthew. Remember? It's on your mental bulletin board. Uh, Daryl Johnson calls the book of Matthew a manual for the Christian life. And that's why we read it at the start. So if you close your Bible, turn back there. Um, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to see the pathway of growth that Jesus guides his followers on. He starts in chapter 6 by talking about generosity, about financial sacrifice. 
and then about praying for God's vision to be accomplished, a sacrifice of our own will, and then about fasting, which is a physical sacrifice. Why? Because we need to train ourselves to remember that our hope is not in these things. Our hope is not in our finances, but we forget. So we give our money away to teach us that that's not where we get our hope. We'll be okay without it. Our hope is not in getting our own way, but we forget. So we give our independence away in prayer. We ask for God's will to be accomplished in our community. We'll be okay if we don't get our own way. Our hope is not in having enough food or comfort, but we forget. So we take regular breaks from eating to teach us that fulfilling our desires is not where we get our hope. We'll be okay without it. That's actually what we're doing as a whole church every Tuesday, starting just last week. We're fasting from breakfast and lunch to train the muscle memory of our hearts to remember that our circumstances are not where we find our hope. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Place your hope in what will not disappoint. Don't put your RRSPs in fresh-cut flowers. <laughs> Look at uh, Psalm 39 for a minute. Uh, we won't read the whole thing, um, but as we see this in this uh, psalm, David crying out and He's having this whole interaction with sin and the desires of his heart and how he wants to follow God. He's not doing a great job at it. Uh, And let me just scan through here. There we go. So in verse 11, uh, David actually asks, uh, he goes to God and he... um, in his asking for God to help him make, help him get back on the right way, he says, when you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is bed of breath. So I'll continue in verse 12. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Uh, look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. So David, in this psalm, um, again, he's, he's in this perspective of, wow, like, I need to get away from my sin. And he's actually ashamed at the end of the psalm. He's like, Lord, turn away from me. I'm not good enough to be like you. But I think it's interesting the comment that he makes there. He says, when you discipline, you consume their wealth like a moth. Um, God is actually so committed to us getting our hope, to getting our hope right, that he allows the things that we've put our hope in to turn out hopeless. Uh, he sends the moth sometimes to chew it up, to wake us up. So Jesus, in Matthew 6, he knows this psalm <laughs> when he says, look, moth and rust destroy the possessions that you have, the things that you've put all your hope in. In Revelation, it's not the moth, it's the trumpets that signal difficult times to wake the people up, to call us to put our hope in the right place. Because without being reminded, we're bad at putting our securities in the right place. Jesus calls us to see and to orient our lives around the way that we see through heavenly lenses. I guess the next part in this passage is the eyes of the lamp of the body. What you see is what you get. 
the things that we set our eyes on determine where we place our hope. Are we looking to Jesus or to circumstances? Well, let's practice looking at Jesus through generosity and fasting and praying. Friends, I want to urge you, you cannot hold on to the consumer culture of our society and also serve the Lord. Nor can you put your hope in the systems that you just hope will deliver all your consumer needs. Whether they're politics or religious systems that promise earthly prosperity, you name it. You will fail the test if this is how you orient your life. When you come to suffering, you will not continue to walk with Jesus. Because if all of your hope is in the things that can fail, they are going to fail you. I promise you. I'm so sorry, but I promise you, your money is going to fail you. Your clothes are going to fail you. Your status is going to fail you. Anything you put your hope in that is not of the eternal God will fail you. That's why Jesus says no one can serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And if it wasn't clear that money and possessions was the one we're most, obs- most obsessed with, he adds, you can't serve both God and money. And it's there after telling us where to place our hope, he goes on in Matthew 6 and says, so do not worry about your circumstances. If you have this kind of hope, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not so much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? I hope you hear the affection in Jesus' voice here. When we think about God's patience in growing us through the suffering of this world, we can perhaps imagine that he's cold and he doesn't care. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is a reason he calls himself our father. Um, When I was little at my parents' home, we had a wood-burning fireplace um, and it'd get really hot. And the way the house was built, there wasn't really a way we could secure it. And so as a toddler, uh, once I started to crawl around, they needed to teach me. I was probably three or four. It's not totally a toddler, but they needed to teach me, Kevin, it's dangerous there. Don't go there. And so what they did is they, in the most loving thing possible, they put their hand here and held my hand and brought their hand close to the flame. So my hand could feel some warmth, enough to know you shouldn't go there. It's profound that their hand was first before mine that they're bringing me to remind me of the suffering that's potential there, but they're going there first. To say, Gavin, this is dangerous. Stay away. Our God is not one who does not care about our suffering. He's not just practical, get them to the character. He knew what it would be like, and so he actually entered it himself. He put himself always closer to the fire. At the end of Scripture, we see him enthroned as a conqueror, but pictured as a slaughtered lamb. This is how God has loved us. After Paul talks about suffering leading to hope in Romans, he says this, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. 
who has been given to us because you see it just the right time. While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. Whatever suffering you are going through, if you turn away from this world and turn toward him, I promise that you will find Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, sitting beside you and weeping with you. Wounded just as you are, sympathetic to your pain, in fact, sharing it with you. He loves you. Oh, how you need to know that any and everything you may experience will never be wasted because of his profound and patient love for you. I'm going to pray and we're going to respond in song together. Father God, we thank you that you patiently love us. God, that you knew that you know that to just bring full restoration, you'd have to actually get rid of us too. Um, but you are renewing us and shaping us and forming us to people who look at your image. And God, it is hard for us to look at difficult times and rejoice. Um, but I pray that you'd give us lenses um, that see the way that you see. Lord, that all our hope wouldn't be in things that actually disappoint us all the time, um, but that we'd place our hope in you as the eternal and faithful one. So thank you for this. Uh, Holy Spirit, keep these things pressed in our minds and our hearts as we go from here, as we go maybe not anywhere into suffering or maybe to the next room where there's deep suffering. Let's pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.